Well, it sure is a great day to be visiting with us here at the Blue Point Bible Church, as those of you who are visiting will leave with a copy of my recently published book, Wicked. Thank you for being here, and I pray that our outlining wickedness will be beneficial to each and every one of your lives, which I trust it will. So I published this book about three weeks ago, and I have to say, there's already some great reviews pouring in. Um, I know of some people who have already read through the entire book, God bless them, and are going back a second time to study through the text. I look forward to some of the great reviews on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, etc. So the goal of this series, Outlining Wickedness, is going to be what I said in the beginning of the book Wicked, is, should be the goal of any sermon, message, book, etc. by any Christian, and that is to highlight and to emphasize eternally fulfilling and satisfying life, which is made possible through Jesus Christ. So that's what we're going to be doing. We're going to be highlighting that, talking about that, and ultimately understanding the opposite, understanding wickedness as seen throughout the Bible, identifying wickedness in our world and in our lives, and removing wickedness from among us. That's going to be our goal as we outline wickedness and pursue eternally fulfilling and satisfying life. If you will turn with me to Romans chapter 10, how we're going to do this today in our introduction is we're going to talk about the work of pursuing eternally fulfilling and satisfying life and removing wickedness from among us. What are some of the things we need to be looking at as we begin outlining wickedness and we begin this course of looking at eternally fulfilling and satisfying life as the result of removing wickedness from among us? Romans chapter 10 Verses 1 through 4. Here the Apostle Paul, in writing to the church at Rome, is speaking about his desire and his hope. And he's also lamenting something that is happening here. And we read, starting at verse 1. Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. And here we're speaking about Old Covenant fleshly Israel. For I testify about them that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. So you see, unfortunately, Israel of the flesh was persecuting the righteousness of God because they had a zeal for God, a zeal not based on knowledge, and they persecuted righteousness rather than seeing Christ as the righteousness which they so desired. So here, we're already noting something. We must be a people who have a zeal empowered by knowledge in contrast to what the Apostle Paul is lamenting here in regards to a people who have a zeal for God and not having a knowledge of him. I know I'm not the only person here that knows somebody who has a zeal for God or who has met someone who has a zeal for God that is not based upon knowledge. Unfortunately, that's by and large many people in our world today. They have a zeal for God or they have a zeal for godly things, but they do not have a knowledge of him. And if you do that, that unfortunately leads you to running against the truth, the righteousness, the power of the kingdom of God you end up running against it rather than running with it and for it and, and in support of it. We do not want to be a people who are, have a zeal without knowledge. Zeal without knowledge leads us to be like the Pharisees who persecuted Christ. 
So that's going to be our first thing. The first thing we must note in removing wickedness from among us is that we need to have a zeal empowered by knowledge. We need to have, we need not to be a people who are zealous without having knowledge. In 1 John chapter 3, which is going to be our next text I'm going to ask you to turn to, we're going to read about this righteousness. We're going to read about how to walk in this righteousness. What is right living? What is the sin that keeps the people of God away from him? We're going to see that here highlighted in this text. Matter of fact, we're going to read verses 1 through 16. Starting at verse 1. See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called children of God. And such we are. For this reason, the world does not know us because it did not know him. Right here, we already see something interesting. How many of you, and I know many of you do, know, have seen this, know people that say everyone is a child of God? Everybody on the planet. Well, that's being zealous, but that zeal is not based on knowledge. I understand the construct. Again, we're all creatures and creations of God. However, we're not all children of God. Children of God are made manifest through Jesus Christ, as we're going to see here in this chapter. So right there, we already have noted a problem in our culture today with calling everyone a child of God, having a zeal for godly things, but not a knowledge of them. The world does not know us, meaning it does not understand us, it does not comprehend us, because it does not know him. Beloved, verse 2, we are now children of God, and it has not yet appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him, just because we we will see him just as he is. You see, in this time, in this first century time here, the, the apostles had, and the prophets and the, the people of God had known Christ according to the flesh. We see this in Hebrews chapter 5. They had known him as born under, under law, born of a woman. What they did not know him as was revealed in glory and judgment. And the saints knew that if they cleaved to Christ, there was no condemnation for those that were in Christ, as we see in Romans 8.1. However, they did not fully comprehend the depth of that judgment. What would the people of God be? What would they look like? And today, I want to be the person to tell you that that is not the mystery for us any longer. We are not a people who do not know what we shall be. We are a people who know where the presence of God is found in and through his church. And when we're saying a church, we're not talking about the building. We're talking about the people. The people that God has found, Jesus has found in and through us. And we now know what we shall be. We are a glorified body, the body of Christ, his people. Again, this would have been something so foreign to the flesh and blood lineage of Jesus, uh, lineage of Jesus Christ. It would have been foreign to those first century people who were so used to the constructs and the systems they had that helped them understand God. No, the body of Christ neither Jew nor Gentile, the glorified, immortal body of Christ. We know what that is now. We're not waiting for that reality. And everyone who has this hope, or we might say everyone who has this reality, fixed on him, keep that in mind. And if you know you underline in your Bible, I would urge you to underline that. Fixed on him. That's going to be very important to what we talk about today. Everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. Everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him, who fixes their eyes on him, sins. No one who sins has, been, has seen him or knows him. 
Little children, make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. I hope you, you all know that we're not speaking about a righteousness of our own. We're speaking about a righteousness of Jesus Christ, his righteousness that allows us to follow after him and walk as he walked. Verse 8, the one who practices sin is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this very purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. The devil is that which is in opposition to the things of God that leads us to sin. No one who is born of God practices sin because his seed abides in him and he cannot sin because he is born of God. By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness, again, righteousness in and through Jesus Christ, is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. This right living is going to be demonstrated by loving our God through Jesus Christ and loving our neighbor as seeing them in and through Jesus Christ as well. Like Jesus said, in the least of these... I am the least of these. In the least of these, you see me. You have served me. You know me. You love me. That's the righteousness we're talking about here. In contrast to uh, verse 11, for in this message, which you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another, not as Cain, who was of the evil one and slew his brother. And for what reason did he slay him? Because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised then, brethren, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. He who does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. We know love love by this. Catch this verse here. We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, And we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. We ought to serve one another with such a love that it is laying down our lives. A bunch of interesting things contrasted there. You know, I know a lot of people that claim to be people of God, children of God, and don't go around loving the brethren. Are not giving up their lives for one another. Are not fixing their eyes on Jesus. These are the things we must do if... We desire to see wickedness routed out from amongst us. We must cleave to his righteousness. We must must move away from sin. The sin namely being highlighted here is idolatry, a sin that leads us to not focus on him, not fix our eyes on him, as we are called to, as verse 3 notes here in 1 John chapter 3. A sin that leads us away, what I would like to call, and what I call throughout the book wicked, is an innate idolatry. There's something within each and every one of us that leads us to want to walk in opposition. It's one of the most frustrating sins in the world. I want to turn to another text, the Gospel of John, John chapter 10. John chapter 10, and we're going to read through John chapter 10, verses 1 through 15. Truly, truly, I say to you, Jesus speaking here, He who does not enter by the door into the fold of the sheep, but climbs up some other way, he is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is a shepherd of the sheep. To him the doorkeeper opens, and the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he puts forth all of his own, he goes ahead of them, and the sheep follow him because they know his voice. A stranger they simply will not follow, but will flee from him because they do not know the voice of the strangers. This figure of speech Jesus spoke to them, but they did not understand what those things 
were which he had been saying. So Jesus said to them again, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who is not of the owners, who is not owner of the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand and is not concerned about the sheep. Keep that in mind. He is not concerned about the sheep. I am the good shepherd, and I know my own, and my own know me, even as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. So let's stop there. This is one of my favorite texts. If you've known me, this is my evangelistic call. That the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. I come that you may have life and have it to the full. Who's the thief that came to steal, kill, and destroy God's best for you in life? Who's the thief that does not have your best interest at mind? That will not save you and will lead you to go in and out and find pasture. He's not concerned about the sheep. Who's the thief that still kills and destroys and is not concerned about you finding God's best for your life? Some people point to an ethereal being. Some people point to the, Ill, the demons of the world. And they say those are the thieves. You know, the, the sickness, the despair, the violence. And they say, those, the wicked people, those are the things that, that are stealing, killing, and destroying God's best for me. Some people, again, blame an ethereal being. I'm going to challenge you a little bit further this morning. What steals, kills, and destroys? What came before Jesus Christ that steals, kills, and destroys God's best? That's a hired hand, that is a thief, a stranger. I would challenge it's your carnality. It's your mind. The carnal mind is set at odds with God. It's something very important to consider because we need to rightly identify the thief. And we're going to be doing that as we outline wickedness over these next couple weeks now. We know that we need to look to the good shepherd. We need to follow the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. We need to know his voice. Unfortunately, there's a lot of people out there that want to follow the good shepherd but just simply do not know his voice. We need to get to know the Father's voice. We do that through the Spirit and through the Word. By fixing our eyes on Him, as 1 John chapter 3 pointed out. By having a zeal empowered by knowledge. Gaining a knowledge of Him. We're going to talk about that here in a moment. John 3.16, we all know the verse. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever should believe in Him shall not perish, but have everlasting, eternal life. Or, as I pointed out earlier today, eternally fulfilling and satisfying life. Again, I believe we can use those words and kind of stretch them out because I don't know anybody in the room that is familiar with the Greek term Ionios Zoe, which is actually the Greek, what Jesus would have said in regards to eternal life. Ionios means age-enduring. What we're talking about is an age-enduring life. And it should not be a secret to any of you here that I believe we are in the age to come. I believe we are experiencing the powers of the age to come, that the age prior that hoped for what we now have in and through Jesus Christ, they did not experience. We have access to the very presence of God. We have access to the power of God. We are the priests of God healing the nations, doing that work. That is eternal life. God so loved the world that he gave his 
only begotten Son, that whosoever should believe in him shall not perish, shall not die, shall not be destroyed, but shall have everlasting, eternal, fulfilling, and everlasting life. Eternally fulfilling and satisfying life. And unfortunately, a lot of people are waiting for that life. John 17, 3. Matter of fact, I'm going to turn there. This is eternal life. This is eternal life. (laughs) That they may know you, the one true God, in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Why? Because if you know the one true God, you have a zeal empowered by knowledge. If you know the true God, you know how to fix your eyes on him and move away from sin and move toward righteousness in him and follow as, walk as he walked. We see that in the epistles of John as well. That whoever desires to say that they are of Christ must walk as he walked. We know that we want to follow after the good shepherd and know his voice. So we surely need to be a people who know the one true God. And that is how we find eternally fulfilling and satisfying life. In the book Wicked, one of the quotes I share with you that's actually found on the front of your bulletin this morning is, we must naturally carnally die and submit to the knowledge of God as made known through Jesus Christ and then have and live eternally fulfilling and satisfying life. We must stop eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You see, this is the problem with the knowledge of the tree of good and evil. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil is that in those ancient cultures, they would border their little you know, campground, we'll call it. They'd border their little campground there um, with trees. And the trees would usually be dedicated to their gods. And they would did it in, in, in the Garden of Eden. This start, st- helps you start to make sense of that story there. What was that tree? That tree was most likely a tree that was given over to idolatry by the pagan worshipers. And that's what was being told to Adam and Eve that they should not go near. They should not eat and partake of that tree. Again, this was Israel's problem again and again and again. They would continually look to other cultures, look to the Baal worshippers, look to the worshippers of Molech, look to all these different false gods, and then incorporate that into their worship. God desires worship in spirit and in truth. We read about in John chapter 4, verse 4. You're not allowed to go over and incorporate the tree of the knowledge of good and evil with the tree of knowledge of life, with the tree of life. They don't go together. That knowledge will lead you to follow the thief. Leaning upon your own understanding is the very essence of the thief. You know, when I became a Christian and I wrote a couple books and I became very passionate about having this knowledge of God, many people that know me would say, wow, you must have done some really wicked things to be as zealous for God as you are today. I'm going to tell you today that my most heinous sin is a sin that you are all guilty of as well. And that's allowing carnality to be our God. Leaning upon our own understanding and demanding our right over God's right. Acting as if God doesn't exist. The one true God doesn't exist. And I'm going to do it my way or my idol's way or my whatever it is. Or my own God's way. That's the most disgusting sin. The sin that seems to keep us most captivated. I know I'm not the only person that knows people that say, I have the right to be right. I have the right to believe whatever I want. I have the right to worship whatever God I want. No, you don't. Because if you're seeking eternally fulfilling and satisfying life, you do not have that right. You do not have the right to lean upon your own understanding. 
You do not have the right to have a zeal without knowledge. You do not have the right to focus on sin and move further and further away from righteousness. You do not have the right to listen to the thief and allow him to steal, kill, and destroy God's best for you. No. Such a disgusting sin. And unfortunately, it's the sin that keeps us so captivated. Reminds me of that passage where it says their God is their stomach. Speaking about the first century um, you know, Pharisees and their God being themselves. Ignorance, idolatry. Let's talk about the knowledge of God. If you want to turn with me to Proverbs chapter 2. Verses one, I'm going to read through this whole chapter here because this is going to tell us a lot about the knowledge of God and what we should be seeking after. This is the opposition to listening to the thief. My son, if you receive my words and treasure my commandments within you, make your ear attentive to wisdom. Incline your heart to understanding. For if you cry for discernment, lift your voice for understanding. If you seek her as silver and search for her as hidden treasures, then you will discern the fear of the Lord and discover the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom, from his mouth comes knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He is a shield to those who walk in integrity, guarding the paths of the justice, and he preserves the way of his godly ones. Then you will discern righteousness and justice and equity in every good course. For wisdom will enter your heart and knowledge will be pleasant to your soul. Discretion will guard you. Understanding will watch over you to deliver you from the way of evil. For the man who speaks perverse things from those who leave the path of uprightness to walk in the ways of darkness, who delight in doing evil and rejoice in the perversity of evil, whose paths are crooked and whose are devious in their ways to deliver you from the strange woman, from the adulteress who flatters with her words, that leaves the companion of her youth and forgets the covenant of her God. For her house sinks down to death and her tracks lead to the dead. None who go to her return again nor do they reach the paths of life. So you will walk in the way of good men and keep the paths of the righteous, for the upright will live in the land and the blameless will remain in it, but the wicked will be cut off from the land and the treacherous will be uprooted. In Hosea chapters 4 and 6, in the book of Hosea, we see the judgment of this prophet going against the northern tribes of Israel in their idolatry as they went over to all sorts of forms of worship of pagan gods. And Hosea prophesied to them that destruction was upon their head, that they were now dead to God because of their lack of knowledge. Their lack of knowledge, their lack of seeking after the Lord and instead leaning upon their own understanding and going into idolatry, allowing that innate idolatry to be manifest led to their judgment in 722 B.C. by the Assyrian armies. The northern tribes were never the same, were never able to be gathered again. They became known as the lost tribes of Israel. That's what happens when we lean upon our own understanding and we disregard the knowledge of God. In 2 Corinthians chapters 10, uh, chapter 10, verses 4 through 5, we read that that is our battle. That is the battle of a Christian, is to demolish strongholds, false lies and principalities and powers and wickedness by demonstrating the knowledge of God. Anything that seems to be set up against the knowledge of God, we are called to destroy. 
That's how we will remove wickedness. But again, the only way to do that is by having a zeal that is empowered by knowledge, by focusing on Him, fixing our eyes on Him, having a righteousness, seeking after the righteousness of Christ, moving away from the sin of innate idolatry, doing things our way, living by our own standards, etc., Knowing who the thief is and knowing the voice that we are called to listen to. These things are all necessary in our pursuit, in our battle against principalities and powers in our pursuit of eternally fulfilling and satisfying lives. In 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 2, it tells us that that grace and knowledge, may you grow in grace and knowledge by way, those are the things that you have the promises of God by way of. The grace of God and the knowledge of God. In Romans chapter chapter 5, verse 8, it speaks about that glorious truth, that praiseworthy, God-glorifying truth that God saved us while we were yet sinners. And we know that that wasn't only for the Jews that were coming out of their covenant that made them guilty of sin. Again, we see in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 56, it says that sin was made manifest, uh, death was made manifest through sin and sin was made manifest through law. Yes, that was old covenant. But the Gentiles were also guilty in their sin. As we're going to see in this text, we're going to look at in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, which we'll be talking about as we outline wickedness in the next couple weeks. Of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience, which you've seen highlighted there in John chapter 8 as Jesus spoke to the Pharisees and he calls them the sons of the devil, their father. Among them, too, we all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, listening to that selfish desire of our inner person rather than listening to the will of God, indulging in the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, notice that it doesn't say but we, but they, but any other cause but God. God had to intervene. All of that was a problem that we could not fix ourselves. Thank God he loved us while we were yet sinners. But God, being rich in his mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, raised up with him, seated in heavenly places with him, so that in ages to come, this is something important to note, and we're going to end on this passage in a moment here, but I want to highlight it right now. So that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. That's the goal. All of this has been done so that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. That's the power of the age to come, amen? That is the reality we now experience. So... That's what we're going to be talking about as we outline wickedness for the next couple weeks, maybe months. We're going to be talking about how we can make known the surpassing riches of his grace by understanding wickedness in the Bible, identifying wickedness in our lives, removing the wickedness from us so that we will highlight and live eternally fulfilling and satisfying lives. Amen? Amen. So a couple more things about the book Wicked. What I do in Wicked is I challenge you to move away from the false notions of spirituality that have captivated most of our world, even the Christian world. 
and come into a more Hebraic, conceptual spirituality. I had somebody ask me recently, why do you believe it's so important to focus on the Hebrew people and their spirituality? Well, if we don't do that, we end up leading on an otherworldly, dualistic, dare I mention Hellenistic, which was later magnified by Alexander the Great and his reforms, his reforms on that Roman culture. I hardly would call them reforms at all. However, his Hellenistic ideology of a dualistic otherworld captivates so many today that when we lean upon our own understanding, more, more often than not, that is what is manifest. So what we want to do is bring ourselves back to a Hebraic conceptual spirituality, a conceptual spirituality that highlights details that manifest in natural ways, conceptual details that manifest in natural ways. And let me give you a couple examples. Not, not to mention, the first one here is in Ephesians chapter 2, um, as we just read, seated in heavenly places. Well, the church at Ephesus wasn't taken off the planet and brought to some other realm. They were seated right there in Ephesus. However, conceptually, they were seated in heavenly realms. Today, we know that Jesus Christ is here with us. We know that we, we have his presence manifesting through us. That is a conceptual reality that has been provided through the spirit of Jesus Christ. In the beginning of the Bible, in that Garden of Eden picture, they were taken to a natural place, a literal garden, a real place, that was to magnify the presence of God. The presence of God in a small group of people, a remnant people, in contrast to the outside ugly, wicked world around them. We see a serpent, a snake. Again, conceptual image of a snake or a serpent, which simply was most likely an idol worshiper. The spiritual battle we are called to fight, pulling down strongholds. Demo- you know, in the Old Testament, those were literal strongholds, real places that you would go to in the land and demolish the strongholds that elevated the idols. Today we do that by demolishing the, sp- the mental, the conceptual strongholds that elevate the mental conceptual idols. Because most people today, let's face it, they're not building... These, uh, these temple systems and putting little images in a box. Conceptually, they sure are. So that's what we're going to be doing as we go through this battle. So my challenge for us as we grow and go today, as we've been doing this exercise, the vision I had shared for us at our semi-annual meeting is that we are grow to, go, to grow and go. And what that means is this, that whatever we do in this place must be done out there in the mission field, in the world. So if we're growing in here, if we're learning that we must fix our eyes on Jesus, as we saw in 1 John chapter 3, if we're learning that it is by the grace and the knowledge of God that we have the precious promises of God, if we're learning that all of this has been done so that we would show grace, the grace of God, the surpassing riches of his grace for ages to come, we better be doing that out there. So now I'm going to ask you in closing this morning, as we come to a close of our sermon, is to begin to think about where you need to go. Now that you've grew, where do you need to go? Think of somebody, think of a situation, think of a person, a perspective, a circumstance that needs the knowledge of God, that needs exactly what we talked about here today. Maybe you know somebody that needs a zeal empowered by knowledge. They need to learn a little bit more. Maybe write their name down. Challenge them with the knowledge of God this week. Exhort, encourage, and implore them with the knowledge of God. Maybe you know somebody that needs to know the grace of God. Carry this message to them. Write their name down this morning. In Ephesians, we had read about that surpassing greatness of his riches, the grace of God, the riches that we have in him. 
I know each and every one of us knows somebody that needs to hear about the riches of his grace. Needs to hear about how we're routing out wickedness at the Blue Point Bible Church in a graceful and truth-loving community. Let's walk worthy of going out there and helping the world grow so that we would see the kingdom of God made manifest. Amen? By inviting them into the truth of Jesus Christ, by exhorting them, encouraging them, encouraging and imploring them with the knowledge of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for going before us in our message this morning, that you would prepare our minds and our hearts to hear from you. Lord, as we make notice that we need to have a zeal empowered by knowledge, that we need to know the knowledge of God, that we need to love the brethren, Lord, Allow us to be built up in these things. Allow us to grow in these things so that we will go to the people that need it the most, Lord, and bring the healing of the nations. Thank you, Lord, for the reality you've given us. Thank you for the precious promises you have given us through your grace and your knowledge. We magnify your holy name, Lord. We ask that you go before us in such a mighty task that you have called us to. That the church would make known the manifold wisdom of God. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen.